kitchens are very hierarchical, but in a way very egalitarian because someone can start as a dishwasher and work their way up to being, you know, at the top of that if they just work really hard and have the, the aptitude for it. Helena Del Pesco has staged at Chez Panisse, cooked in a Michelin-starred restaurant in Spain, and created performance art in the Bay Area. But now she's brought her travel, food, and art experiences to Baltimore in the form of Larder, a mostly local restaurant in Old Goucher. If you haven't been, the space is really cool and the food is fantastic. In this episode, we discuss her approach to cooking and her new life in the ever-evolving and ever-improving Baltimore food scene. I was getting really into fermentation and... In that time, I had some spare time. I was like wondering about this guy, Sandor Katz, who had written a fermentation book if he was teaching or talking anywhere in the area. And he was giving a workshop in Baltimore, which, you know, I had actually never been to Baltimore before. So um, I made my first trip down for that workshop. And then I literally went up to hand Megan my money, and she was like, did you go to MCAD, which is the art school I went to in Minneapolis? And I was like, what's going on here? I just came to Baltimore for the first time. This person knows me somehow. Um, so, yeah, we turns out we went to the same art school. Oh, my gosh. And we had a lot of friends in common. And, um, yeah, I, I when I went to visit her shop, I was just so impressed. Like, I thought it was going to be a more kind of scrappy operation, but she had such a um like really good product and just seemed like people were really excited about what they were doing which kind of gave me a sense of like okay like if this business can be supported in Baltimore probably the kind of things that I want to do would be as well so it was like mm-hmm. that spark of like hmm let's learn more about Baltimore there you go so yeah I ended up coming down a couple days a week from Elkton to work at Hex and then we traveled some more and then when I came back we bought a house and I worked for Hex for a while like more regularly after that are you originally from San Francisco I lived there there? for 12 years but I I grew up in um moving around a bit between um, Minnesota Wisconsin and Tennessee wow so um, I don't think I've been to any of those states (laughs) oh really no yeah um yeah I was born in Wisconsin and then my family moved to Tennessee when I was pretty young and then Minneapolis and then back to Wisconsin. So how did you end up in San Francisco? San Francisco. So I met my husband in Minneapolis. Um, he was running a gallery there. I had just finished art school. And so we met through mutual friends. And he wanted to go to grad school. And he got into the California College of the Arts. Um, so we moved there for him to go to school originally. And then just you know fell in love with that place and had great opportunities there. Um, lived in San Francisco, Oakland, and then San Francisco again. Um, but then, you know, kind of hit this point that I think a lot of people do living there where it's like hard to imagine a long-term future because it's so expensive and friends of ours were getting evicted. From oh my gosh. Houses. Yeah. It wasn't just like we were hearing about evictions secondhand. It was like multiple people we knew were being evicted. They're not from- being able to make rent? No, because um, no, one of them was like the executive director of one of the oldest nonprofits in San Francisco. It was just that people who owned properties were realizing that like their um, the value of their properties were so high that they could sell them for a lot of money or like redevelop them into condos. So people were finding all kinds of loopholes in the like renters' rights laws to like evict people so that they could make more money off their properties. Oh wow. That's, yeah. Okay. I I love San Francisco, <laughs> but I do not think it's a sustainable place to live. I mean, it's no. I think even for people in the tech industry, you know, everyone's like, "Oh, the tech industry ruins San Francisco," and you know that may have some truth to it. But it's also, I think, even for people working in the tech industry, it's a really hard place to afford living long term. And a lot of people move there to like put in a few years with a big company with a big name and then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in the we moved there in two thousand three and we left in two thousand fifteen. And um, it changed a lot sure. me, during that time. And in that time, you um, went from – were you a working artist or had you gone to art school and what, yeah. what was your I medium? was working as an artist. Um, I was uh, – the term social practice has kind of become, um, I think, uh, the way that people would describe what I did, which was um, sort of programming events and doing things that involve people more actively in – art rather than making discrete objects that hang on a wall and maybe get sold. So I was doing a lot of public art stuff, um, like temporary public art in hospitals and um, 
things like on the street. And then I started actually cooking as part of my art practice. I was doing these events where I would take um, a story or some kind of narrative and translate it into a meal. And then I went to grad school at UC Berkeley and I got into um, making ceramics there that also fed into that, like, you know, making things for the table as part of that experience. Did some video and sound work around that. Was actually really interested in like interviews as an art form. I did like an audio tour of a group show as an artwork. Um, so I was doing that that kind of thing um, and working in restaurants. So mostly as a server in the front of the house. But the chefs I worked for were really generous with you know sharing knowledge because I was really curious about food in the kitchen and had always cooked. Um, was food really important in your family? Did you grow up with it? I did, yeah. Um, my parents were um, hippies, for sure. <laughs> like, when we moved to Tennessee, it was to live on a commune. Oh, cool. Um, and it was a vegan commune, so food was, like, central to the kind of core philosophy of the people living there. They really believed that, like, not eating meat was a way to end world hunger, that soy was, like, a protein that was more sustainable. I mean, and, they were onto something, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of arguments um, for and against, and maybe we get into that a little sure, bit. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm an omnivore. Yeah, <laughs> just me so too. Know, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we, my mom cooked everything from scratch at home, but not necessarily because it was her passion. She loved cooking from like a, you know, what we think of today is like a foodie gastronome kind of perspective but more like she wanted us to eat healthy and um I think especially at that time you know like in the 80s late 70s early 80s being vegan especially in like outside of Nashville wasn't like you could just go to the grocery store and buy soy milk and tofu you had to make it yourself mm -hmm. so um so I definitely saw a lot of like made from scratch food being made in my home um but my mom was like very practical about it. Mm. So I think actually when I met my husband, Joseph, he was the one who kind of convinced me that like food and wine were like this pleasure experience and that that was also valuable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then moving to San Francisco was really what kind of exploded my view of food and working in these restaurants that were working with farmers and everything really fresh and just sort of like, you know, growing up in the Midwest, like just a little bit more limited kind of selection of things to get exposed to, I guess. So sure. yeah, I just really um, changed my perspective on food for sure. So how did you go from having this um, sort of like utilitarian food experience to being a performance artist to stodging at Chez Panisse? <laughs> I mean, that's like such an interesting path to take. Yeah. Let's see. Try to unravel that. Um, I mean, in San Francisco, the food and art world were fairly intertwined. Um, one of our dearest friends there was uh, a guy named Jerome Vogue and he we first met him through an artwork that he did at SF MoMA um, but he was a chef so basically what happened was we went into this back room after an opening and everyone was sort of milling about like you know with glasses of wine like a normal art opening and then suddenly they carried out this whole pig and like put it down on a butcher block and started doing butchery in the middle of this art opening. And um, I think it was really kind of shocking and surprising, um, but also just really beautiful to show the process, you know, that anytime you eat meat, that's what's happening. So they're just kind of making that visible, and they were just sort of like cooking it as they were taking apart the pig. And that was kind of it. Like, it was really simple, but it was, had a big impact. Um, and then later on, he ended up doing a bigger, more elaborate event at SF Mama having to do with the Futurist cookbook. Um, there's like uh, the Dadas and the Futurists are a, an art movement. Yes, and um, it just was sort of natural working in restaurants and being an artist also that those things came together. Mm -hmm. So you were experiencing these really interesting and, and sort of simple, as you said, this like dismantling of the pig, this butchering in public to remind you of food. And was that sort of a launch pad for you? like higher up in the restaurant world or was that what got you into it to begin with? Um, no, I mean, I think um, becoming friends with people like Jerome who um, had, you know, 
so he was working at Chez Panisse um, for a very long time. I think he started there when he was like 19 or 20 and worked his way up. And um, he is literally how I ended up at Chez Panisse because um, he had been promoted to head chef. And so I kind of saw that as my wow. opportunity to um, to just get to see that kitchen firsthand. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just asked and <laughs> he said yes. I mean, he knew that I had lots of professional restaurant experience. I knew how to hand myself in a kitchen, even though I had been a server. Um, and we had done some events together, too, at that point. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, Chez Panisse has interns going through all the time, stages going through all the time. Sometimes they're a year long. Sometimes they're a day long. Um, that's just the kind of place it is. And a lot of, you know, restaurants of that caliber um, run on on that free labor, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is an interesting <laughs> kind of behind-the-scenes thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a really um, well-established kitchen, so, you know, they have um, have made space for people to come in in that way. And um, I worked in the downstairs, which is the, the, the fixed menu, and they actually all sit down for dinner together in between the first and second seating, really? which I got to be a part of as well. And they eat the whole menu. Oh, my gosh. Um, plated family style. But, you know, it's um, – I don't know of any other restaurant where that happens. That's wonderful. But it's one of those funny legacies of Chez Panisse. Um, in a, a place like San Francisco, which is somewhat similar to Baltimore in that it, it's – ultimately, it's a small city – um, and you get to know the people who share your interests. And once people kind of know that you're, you know, a reliable, hardworking person, then you can kind of just ask and get opportunities, you know. Um, yeah, I really I think that's really true about Baltimore, too. Like, yeah. with, as you were saying, I mean, just the people want to help each other and people are always looking for the ways to connect and the ways that they already know each other and and how to, to bring everybody together. So I think that's a very, like, lucky thing to have in a city. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah, the, the chefs that I worked for, um, the chef I worked for the longest was Russell Moore at Camino in Oakland. And he had also been at Chez Panisse for 20 years. So it's kind of amazing how um, many of the restaurants in the Bay Area are opened by people who've spent time at Chez Panisse. It's really, like, that's its other, you know, really important legacy is just, like, so many great chefs have come out of there and started their own things that then have trained other people. You know, it's yeah. been 40 years going, so it's it's definitely had, like, a huge impact. It's a major legacy. Yeah. Are you seeing um, chefs coming out of, of this kind of situation where maybe it's a tutelage or an apprenticeship or in your situation where you, you did not go to culinary school? I mean, is that, is that more typical – you didn't go to culinary school, right? No, okay. I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. No. I didn't see that you had anywhere in my research. Yeah, no. No. Um, but is that is that the way it's trending? Is it is the culinary world more open to these unusual routes? I think so. I think in a way it always has been. Um, I mean, it's actually a similar – it's a funny parallel with art. Like art school is actually a relatively new thing. Like art used to be much more of an apprentice thing and I think food also is like – in Europe, in the you know, in the early restaurant traditions, it was really like an apprenticeship system. Um, and I think I've met people who have gone to culinary school and really feel like it was valuable and are so glad they did it. And other chefs who wish that they had just you know traveled and apprenticed instead. Um, but I guess you always need that first person person to vouch for you, right? Like, right. And so that's you need that foot in the door. And if you don't have it, maybe that's what yeah a culinary school could and do. restaurants are really set up with a pretty specific ladder, you know, like when you come into the kitchen, you start out doing things that are like, you can't mess things up too much. You know, mm -hmm. you're like picking parsley or <laughs> whatever. And then, you know, um, the person above you's job is to kind of notice like how you do that and whether you're kind of ready to take the next step. And um, I mean, in, in that way, like kitchens are very hier hierarchical, but in a way very egalitarian because someone can start as a dishwasher and work their way up to being you know, at the top of that, if they just work really hard and have the the aptitude for it, I think. Sure. Yeah. So, um, before you opened Larder, yes. Um, you, so between San Francisco and and now, I guess you were in Spain, right? Yes. And that, was that for a while, or was that that was a month? So a month. That was oh, also okay. a stage. Yeah. Okay. It was a month long stage. Um, I was there full time for that month. 
at Arzac and um that was also like actually a connection through an artist friend who um knew the sister of the owner of the restaurant and I basically had just told him that I wanted to spend the second half of this year traveling the first half was doing artist residencies and the second half I really wanted to be like in professional kitchens um and he was like, I know this place in San Sebastian that maybe you'd be interested in. Let just me just, a couple Michelin let me just reach out to them. <laughs> I was not looking to be anywhere that prestigious. Like, honestly, I just wanted I, – I think what I wrote to him was like, someone who's like, um, you know, makes really good food but isn't like a tyrant to work for. <laughs> you know, like someone who's going to mm-hmm. be like um, uh, a, good, a good mentor. Um, and, yeah, and so then – when he made that connection for me, um, I was pretty intimidated and walked into this kitchen that's, you know, everyone's wearing the tall white paper hats. And like, you know, San Francisco, even the top restaurants like have a sort of informality to them in a way. And Europe is much more formal. Um, and it was basically me and like 30 19 year olds who just gotten out of culinary school a couple other like more seasoned chefs and and owners of other places um but um again I was just surprised like how friendly everyone was actually and Mm -hmm. I think just the fact that I showed them right away that I was like I knew how to it's almost well I feel like one of the most important things in a kitchen is knowing how to move in a kitchen and um as a former waiter yeah I can tell you there's a kind of like there's a way that people like yeah communicate just through body subtle body language that's so important in kitchens because you don't have the time to like say all the things you need to say you need people to like move out of the way because they just see you shifting your weight a little Mm -hmm, bit mm -hmm. um so I think you know things like that um are noticed in kitchens and once you kind of show people that you're able to hold your own then they just want more bodies in there working because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and that restaurant was so different from Chez Panisse. In fact, like, you could almost put them on opposite ends of a spectrum in terms of Chez Panisse being all about, like, the wrong ingredient and not messing with it too much and just sort of really showcasing, like, what's in season. Um, and not that Arzac didn't care about the quality of ingredients. They definitely did, but they're doing a lot more manipulation. So, like... One of my jobs was to put on a chainmail glove and shave a a potato on a meat slicer as thin as humanly possible, like paper thin, and every single one had to be the same and super like precise. And then those thin sheets of potato got stamped with like a leaf, like a maple leaf uh-huh. shape <laughs> cookie cutter. Sure. And then and then they got like separated into three different piles and like some got dyed in beet juice and some got dyed in turmeric and some went in a dehydrator and some got fried and that to was what like end? one element on one dish. But what are they but it was just an, it was just like a something it was like it's very garnish? theatrical food. Okay, so okay. it's like okay, it's fall. Actually, we were there in February. Um but, you know, like each dish kind of told a story. In fact, there was one dish. It was a lobster dish that um, was served on a glass, a, a, a glass like tray with little feet on it. So it stood about an inch above the table. And um, it had like this purple sweet potato that had been kind of stenciled in a honeycomb shape and then bee pollen. It was like this beautiful thing on its own. But then they put it down in front of you and then they slide a tablet under it that's playing a video of like (laughs) waves crashing and volcanoes erupting. (laughs) So this is like grand shots, but like tech, like text, (laughs) teched out. (laughs) Well, like, yeah. So the Arzac family, um, like they are credited with like this gener, it's a um, multi-generation family, but they are credited with kind of starting the – they trained um, Ferran Adria, yeah. And then Arzac, Elena, and – Elena Arzac. Elena Arzac and her dad's name. Juan Mari. Juan. Yeah. Juan. Juan Marie. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. So we can start over with that. Um, I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? That's, that's <laughs> okay. the way we roll. Nice. People love a little behind-the-scenes podcast. Um, so she – and her father, or she, her father was sort of yeah the so, founder of it, and then but then taught the guy that got the recognition. Yeah, okay. he kind of took a traditional family restaurant and like started doing all this crazy stuff, and everyone was like, "What are you doing? You're and insane!" What time frame would that have been? Um, oh, I would guess he's in his seventies or eighties now. 
She was born in 69, so that, that adds up. Yeah. yeah. Um, their family restaurant was like a place people came for big celebrations, and it was very traditional, like traditional Basque cuisine. And then when he took it over, he started slowly changing it. And one of the things I remember him telling me that was like really stuck in my mind was that nobody – in those days, nobody wanted to see the chef. Like a chef was like a dirty servant class person. Well, it's like a who kitchen's like here, like tucked away, you know, in an old yeah. home, like – the kitchen's not central to the home. Yeah, yes. but so he was doing all this experimentation. Experimentation. He wanted to know what people thought about it. So he's going out into the dining room and asking people like what they thought of the food, and people were just like appalled. Like, what are you doing so out ahead of the his dining time? Room? <laughs> well, what did you take from it? Being I mean, there. that's cause yeah. Having eaten at Larder, we had a beautiful meal there yeah. yesterday. Um, I mean, I think I think your food is like presented beautifully, but I don't know that you took that um, theater. Yeah. You. No, I would say that I am a decidedly untheatrical person. Um, and that ultimately, like, I'm glad places like that exist because it's a really fun experience. It's um, it's entertainment. And the food tasted great, too. Like, I did, at the end of it, sit down. My husband sat and I sat down and had the meal because I was kind of like, okay, this is all really beautiful and, like, awe-inspiring, but, like, does it tastes good is it satisfying do you feel like satisfied when you eat the meal and it was like mm-hmm. and the wine and the service was perfect but um but just seeing that it t- took like 10 people literally to make one dish you know and that obviously only works in a certain economy right. um and i was i think it's pretty grueling to try to make an experience like that happen every single night um rather than spectacular i'm going for like really good and nourishing you know and like that that's why I like having lunch be our main thing because it's the everyday food, not the special occasion food. And um, and because we're working seasonally, we are constantly changing the menu, so it doesn't get boring. When you um, first came here and you were in Elkton and then you were looking at Baltimore to you know, make your mark, yeah. was it hard to break into the local farmer world or the local fishermen? I mean, did you have to sort of earn your keep or were they really excited to have uh, a new new voice? Um, somewhere in between those two things. I do think like when I when I contacted people, they were happy to meet with me. When I told them like, I want you to grow this, this and this, they were kind of like, yeah, OK, we'll see. Back you know, Because, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, totally understandably, it's a commitment for them to plan out a crop and um, – and I think there are probably instances where people have um, started out thinking they wanted to do farm to table and then realized it was too hard or it was maybe just a marketing gimmick and they didn't really follow through with it. So I do think that farmers get burned sometimes by people who make big promises or commitments and then don't follow through with them. Um, so I think I felt a little bit of that of just like, okay, we'll see, you know, but but not nothing like um, – just a straight up like cold shoulder you know everyone was like really happy for me to come out and see their farms cool um so I really spent the first two years just like doing that legwork and like establishing those relationships with the idea during those two years that that larder would be the end of end result or were you sort of um I didn't know exactly I think even before I knew exactly that it would be larder like I think at one point I thought maybe I would just do personal chef work or or catering you know like wasn't 100% sure I wanted to take on a brick and mortar um, so it was even just like coming to a new region and wanting to understand what eating seasonally means here. Because, you know, when I lived in the Midwest, obviously the seasons there are even more extreme, but I wasn't as kind of, um, tuned in to the idea of eating seasonally. I really learned how to eat and cook that way in San Francisco, but it's, and not, it's easy there because was it's it not like, that way in Tennessee. Well, I was really young in Tennessee. So I guess just like, you know, when I was in college in Minneapolis, I wasn't really – I really started thinking about like like that being the way I wanted to live my life while I was in San Francisco. Sure. Um, And it's it's like pretty easy there because there's a lot growing all year round. Right. Um, So I knew it would be more challenging here. So my grandparents are from Germany and, you know, there's um, the tradition of fermenting and preserving things is really strong there just like any other country that has a – intense long winter um and so in a way it feels like coming back to my roots kind of being in a climate where that's more important um where you have to kind of plan for the winter and um 
it does force you to be a little more creative too when you know come january february when farmers start to run out of like storage crops mm-hmm. it's like okay there's no more carrots there's no more beets it's just there's no more radishes <laughs> there's just onions potatoes and, <laughs> chicken um, noodle soup with yeah. no carrots <laughs> yeah mushrooms all year round so um it's it's a it is a like even like as an artist i liked things like printmaking and photography because they had these sort of limitations of um you know this is what this medium can do mm-hmm. what can you do within that and i feel like that with like cooking seasonally too um you're constantly given like a different challenge like this is what's available what can you make from that mm-hmm. how did you meet lane because right. and, and my understanding of this is that Larder is part of Fadden Sonnet or it's not part of Fadden Sonnet? Yeah, I mean, we're all um, sharing a property, but okay. we're individual businesses. Gotcha. Um, but we share things like we share the courtyard, which is the, out- the outdoor space. We collaborate in a lot of different ways. We make food for the wine bar um, and we make some of the pastries for sophomore coffee. Right. And, they're, um, and then they're a separate entity as and well. they're a separate entity okay. as well. Okay. Yeah. So Lane really is like the curator of the space. You know, she... Um, had known about this property for a long time and had been kind of working toward opening her business in it and then found out that there was actually more space available than she wanted to use. So um, she, I think, you know, she kind of envisioned us being, it being three businesses that would sort of complement each other in some way. And Chris Fulton, who owns Sophomore Coffee, had worked for her at Clavel for a very long time okay. as a server and a manager. But she knew that he had this really strong background in coffee and that would he'd kind of thought about opening his own business. So she invited us to kind of walk through the space and yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, for me to like with the hesitation of a brick and mortar, the idea of like being instantly kind of in community with other people rather than just being an Island and trying to like attract people to your Island, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So that was like a huge um, draw for us to be in that space. Sure. Yeah. And who did your branding? My husband. Oh, he did. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Lovely. My husband um, was a graphic designer before he became a curator. Um, and, and I'm sorry, what does he curate? He is a contemporary art curator. He works cool. for a, um, a foundation based in Paris and San Francisco. So he's still working for the the foundation he worked for when we lived in San Francisco, just sort of from a distance and mm-hmm. travels. And does he work with? Um, is it, I mean, is it museum based or is it more uh, sometimes? Gallery? Yeah, like he's collaborating with a curator. Um, at a museum in Philadelphia right now. And so oftentimes he does collaborate with people on shows that end up in museums. And then they have a gallery in San Francisco and a gallery in Paris. Um, but he does a lot of like, um, like working directly with artists on like commissioned projects as well as like, per, you know, recommending purchases and things like that. So his career has been, your careers have complemented each other in that you've been able to travel quite a bit and yeah and it's wonderful yeah yeah to be able to see the world together and and keep working and yeah growing totally yeah Yeah, we've been married for 15 years and I think as two people with like you know not super conventional jobs like who are always kind of like having to figure out what the next step is um it is kind of amazing that we've been able to just like keep our paths parallel without Mm -hmm. too much difficulty does he like Baltimore he does yeah yeah. we both really fell in love with it I think just it reminds me actually of like what Oakland was like 10 years ago you know when we were first there um just in some of its like grittiness and the sort of um wild west like anything's possible sense you know it's sort of like there's two sides of the coin of like dysfunction that obviously like needs to be addressed and it's like really serious problems for people um but then the other side of that is like there the cracks in the sidewalk create room for things to grow and like in san francisco everything what a lovely metaphor (laughs) yeah i mean everything just really felt so like polished and 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 you know the amount of money you need to have to do anything in san francisco is just so untainable for most people do you think san francisco and i I don't mean for you to disparage a city that's yeah, home to you for yeah. so long and I, and I do love it um but do you think that san francisco is like at risk of getting boring because like there isn't the room for somebody to come in and make their place 
Yeah, I mean, people were, that's like all anybody talked about the last five oh, really? years that okay. we were living there. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> that, you know, that looming thing. But, you know, and it's, there's always going to be people who find a way um, to like, you know, keep going with whatever their like scrappy project is. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely harder and harder. And we know a lot of people who've left because of that. Um, so I'm to come here. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and I think like that I do feel like there's some anxiety in Baltimore about things changing and gentrification and what does that mean? And um, I think it's a hard conversation to have because capitalism just sort of when housing is a su- supply and demand commodity, like gentrification is sort of a a thing that's going to happen, yeah, you know? Well, and so yeah. I do think like all of us as business owners, like we're interested in kind of having conversations about this of like what are ways that we can be a part of the good things that are happening in the city and in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and also like be sensitive to like how our presence might change things in ways that are uncomfortable for some people. And, um, I mean, how have you worked through those issues? Um, I mean, honestly, like being three months in, like we're just trying to like pay pay people's paychecks, Uh (laughs) keep all the bills paid and stuff. But I think just, um, you know, going around to the neighborhood, the businesses that have been in the neighborhood, introducing ourselves, working with the neighborhood association, um, and even just like the policy, you know, like I think the way that we train our staff to deal with someone who comes in off the street who seems like they might be unstable, like how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you kind of diffuse a situation? How do you make everyone who walks in the door feel comfortable, but also like make sure everyone's safe. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's a lot of conversation. We did a, um, Chris from sophomore initiated a training with the, um, Baltimore, uh, what is it? The, um, harm reduction, Baltimore harm reduction. I don't know if it's Alliance or services. Okay. Baltimore <laughs> harm reduction coalition, perhaps. Okay. Anyway, they're great. And they did a naloxone training with us. Oh, wow. Um, because there are several um, methadone clinics in the neighborhood, so the chance of encountering someone who's overdosed is very high. So we wanted to make sure that at least like someone on the staff feels comfortable administering naloxone and knowing like what an overdose looks yeah. like. Oh my gosh! So yeah, things like that. <laughs> Ooh, that's rough. Yeah, and especially when you're three months into your first brick and mortar. <laughs> I mean, that's. Sure. A lot, yeah. But I think, you know, even San Francisco has issues like that. It's just they don't get talked about as much. Like, it's funny how a city's reputation really drives, like, what ends up in the media. And, like... San Francisco's homelessness, though, I think is a pretty major... Sure. People prevalent, like, thing that I would think about when I think of San Francisco. People do know about that. Um, But, I mean, like, we lived in San Francisco and Oakland. We were in Oakland for five years and then San Francisco for a couple years on either, either end. And the only time we our house was broken into is when we lived in San Francisco. But everybody thinks of, like, Oakland as the dangerous place, you know. So it's just, like, cities kind of get these narratives mm-hmm. around them and that are kind of, like, hard to change, I think. Totally. Um, even though there's often truth, some truth to it, there's also, like, it's also often kind of Well, it's like if lopsided. you have a bad kid in school, like, you're just the bad kid. Sure. Like, you can't yeah. change it. Ever, you know, yes. it's kind of yeah. the way it is, and it's yeah, the, changing the perception is really difficult. Even when everyone's like screaming from the inside, saying, "We like it here; yeah. it's kind of great." <laughs> you know? It just doesn't. It's just white noise if you yeah. don't want to hear it. Yeah, it's really complicated. Yeah. Um, where, if you don't mind me asking, where did you guys end up moving in Baltimore when you came from El- um, Elkton? Yes. What What neighborhood sort of drew you to? We it? looked at a bunch of different neighborhoods, um, and we ended up in Hamden mostly because of the house that we found there was kind of perfect it was a small row home that like hadn't been flipped so it wasn't full of a bunch of like cheap home depot stuff mm-hmm. that we were <laughs> gonna want to take out anyway it was um and it still had a lot of its like original like fireplace grates and cool. woodwork and um you needed some work but not so much that we weren't gonna be able to just start living in it so yeah yeah i really like Hamden. yeah yeah and we liked that it had a walkability to it which reminded us of bernal heights the last neighborhood we lived in in san francisco where it almost feels like a small town because it's got a little main street mm-hmm. um and it's you know in the proximity to old goucher where the business is is it's a nice like are you not able to too walk close, not too far or it's like you... a probably half hour walk but oh, okay, um yeah. biking is is easy it's like a 10 15 minute bike ride and, and then, then like seven minute the... drive 
um, bike path, which is not. Yeah, the bike path on Maryland is great. Um, That's what we took. We uh, Mike and I, producer Mike and I, we scooted from Mount Vernon to Larder for lunch. Yeah, it was great. I I hadn't gone that far north on the bike track yet, but yeah, it definitely has a lot of commuters on it. And um, we have the um, collab right down the street, and um, Bike More is has their offices in there. So Mm -hmm. there's actually been a lot of like bike events in the courtyard have you ever um, done bike party i haven't it's actually <gasps> on my calendar for this month i really want to do it really tomorrow yeah you should it's come tomorrow come on <laughs> i cook like in front of an open fire all night friday night so oh, okay. it's like, really hard for me to get away um, it is i will say after living here for 13 years in the city yeah. it is my absolute favorite thing to do in the city nice there's like nothing that makes me happier or feel more connected or more excited. Yeah. it's. I feel hopeful. I feel energized. It's a yeah. really incredible I really want to do it. I did an event like that in Mexico City, actually. Cool. When we were living, uh, we lived in Mexico City for a month, and they close off um, several main drags in Mexico City every single Sunday for bikes. Like a ciclovia? Um, I don't know what that is. Ciclovia? Mike said like a ciclovia, but we don't know what that means. <clears throat> Uh, okay. It's a Portuguese word if you can't hear Mike. <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't really I forget what, what it they is, call but it, but it, um, they do have a name for it, a different name. But Mexico City actually has a really robust, um, like, um, bike share, city bike program. It's very hilly, right? Um, it's actually not until you get out into the outskirts because oh, it's actually like a I'm, filled in lake. So it's Mexico it's, City. It, is? Yeah. The whole city is sinking because it's landfill. <laughs> I didn't know that. We're going in yeah. February. I hope it's still there. Yes, it <laughs> will be no there. Idea. It's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can imagine the scale of Mexico City, just like a, just like a sea of people on bicycles going down Ramblas, which is like this huge like main drag through the city. And I had that same feeling of just like, oh my God, human beings are great. Mm-hmm. Everything's yeah. going to be okay. We're, yes. <laughs> we're biking through the city. Yeah, it's nice well, to feel that way for a minute. You can get it. <laughs> Through bike party in yeah, Baltimore. Yeah, I'm going to try. You should try. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So <laughs> I um, end each podcast by asking for five recommendations. Mm. So um, I'm going to change yours up a little bit okay. from the normal. There's okay. like a normal five I do, but a couple will be the same. Um, so what is your favorite cocktail in the city? Oh, my favorite cocktail. Lately, I think um, whatever Pam is making at W.C. Harlan – I just like to entrust myself to her and mm-hmm. just ask her to make me whatever. Isn't it she amazing wants? to have a bartender <laughs> where you can just say like put tequila on it, I don't care. Like yeah. you you know what I yeah, like. Yeah, I might yeah. tell her like gin, I might tell her like I need like something a little bitter to settle my stomach or I want it to be extra medicinal tasting. Yeah. And she always makes something. All right. Yeah. Pam at Harlan. <laughs> Good to know. All right, where's your favorite place to go on a date with your husband? Oh. Comptoir. Comptoir du Vin. I still yeah. haven't been. Yeah. Okay. It's just like, it's a sweet little space. The food is always just like reliably on point. Um, great ingredients, great wine. Yeah. All right. Um, what is your favorite local produce? What is the thing that you, that is like grown beautifully here? Right. Um, man, there's a lot of things. You can have more than one if um, I mean, the first thing that popped in my mind was the fish pepper. Um, and I didn't even know that grew in Maryland. Yeah, it's something I, I it's a pepper I had never heard of um, before I came here. And I always get excited when I find, you know, new things. How and, do you cook with it? Um, I mean, we have put it in ferments. You can use it like a cayenne or like any kind of like medium spicy pepper it's not as hot as like a habanero but it can have a pretty good kick to it um it has really interesting history too it was a um a pepper that was used in african-american kitchens in like early american cuisine and then it got kind of forgotten and sort of like a lot of heirlooms that kind of disappeared in industrial food production, like maybe the plants didn't yield enough for mm-hmm. you know it to be worth the farmer to grow them or something like that. Sure. Um, but then um, there was a, a painter from Philadelphia who ended up like bringing the seed back, trading it for bee stings. It's a I'm not going to try to redo, like retell for the story because I'll get I'll get the um, <laughs> yeah bee stings are a remedy for oh. chronic pain. Okay. So okay. he he basically. 
offered this beekeeper this seed collection in exchange for him letting him be stung by his bees because the bees die when right, you right. get stung by them. Okay, so actual bee and, stings. Yeah, not, actual okay. bee stings. Okay, right, that's what I thought you meant originally. <laughs> not a varietal like, of pepper, but okay. like actual bee stings. Um, yeah, and then that that guy grew out those seeds and was like, wow, what's this pepper? And like it kind of like brought it back. What into, happened to the bee sting guy? Do you know? Um, I think he probably went on like, you know, living with chronic pain. Just that, swollen and, and itchy. That, uh, every and once in a while he got some bee stings to help him with it. Oh, um, my gosh. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that that the fish pepper story is really great, um, and it's delicious, and it's a beautiful plant too. It grows um, with a variegated leaf, so like half the leaf will be like a really nice dark green, and half is like totally white, like without any um, pigment or chlorophyll. I guess with plants, it's chlorophyll, um, and people liked it too um, because you could make. You can harvest it white. It's not as spicy, but you can make like a like a spicy sauce without the red color. Oh, um, but yeah, it's just a tasty, tasty pepper. And it's um, peppers this year in general have been really excellent um, for whatever reason. It was a really good pepper year. So like Moon Valley Farm is growing like fifty different varieties of peppers between the sweet and hot I didn't peppers. Know there were fifty. Yeah, um, like they have four different types of habanero peppers that we're making a fermented hot sauce from right now. Um, Karma Farm also has had like really interesting peppers like a little Bra- Brazilian pepper that's like tiny and yellow and looks like it has a little beak on it yeah. Um, yeah so it's fun just to see like that the variety I guess of peppers that are coming out cool yeah all right um, what is your so this is kind of a loaded question what is your favorite cookbook and it could just be mm. you can answer that however you want actually yeah. I won't I won't lead you toward anything what is your favorite cookbook Oh, my favorite cookbook. I feel like it should just be the one that I pull off the shelf the most. Um, it's one one of the Chez Panisse cooking. I think it's just called Chez Panisse cooking. There's so many Chez Panisse cookbooks, but it's the one that um, Paul Bortoli co-authored with Alice Waters. And it's just, um, I go to it for like holiday cooking, like, you know, at home. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually cook ducks for Thanksgiving and there's a recipe in there for duck that I swear by. Um, so, yeah, that one's, like, a standby. And mm-hmm. then, honestly, in terms of just, like, day-to-day, like, feeling unsure about a technique or, like, wanting more technical um, information, the Serious Eats website. Mm-hmm. It's not technically a paper, like, a physical no, cookbook. No, it counts. But, I, yeah, I put yeah, um, You know, just Googling things on the Internet is not always a reliable way to, <laughs> to figure out because there's so much misinformation or just recipes sometimes are terrible, you know, like – they're yeah. just there for show. They're, no one actually tested them um, or didn't test them well. Um, so Serious Eats is great in that they just like – it's not quite as nerdy as America's Test Kitchen. Like it doesn't go quite that – like we've made this 250 times. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they do really get into like why – you're make why the recipe works, why you're making something the way you're making it. Like uh, uh, the simple science so you can at least understand. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think that like the fundamentals – are really important if you're because you know when you're actually like when you're cooking seasonally and you're changing the menu frequently you don't actually have time to like recipe test everything and like record all the recipes like you have to some of the cooking has to be intuitive Mm -hmm. um sure and so understanding like why salting something at one stage versus another stage has an effect on it is important or Mm -hmm. um yeah i think um Simon Nostrat's book is really good yeah. for that too. Yep. Just the if you don't if you're unsure about the why, I yeah. think she's a really approachable like first step to for that. Sure. You know, you can if you're more curious, I think there's more in depth text about it. But yeah. it's a really good like equalizer for people who are either learning to cook or love to cook already yeah. and, and want to know like the answers. Definitely. Yeah. I was when I was doing some personal chef work and I had people who wanted like a cooking lesson because they wanted to feel more comfortable in the kitchen themselves mm-hmm. that like that would be the book that I would recommend to them for sure yeah, yeah. she's lovely yeah um and and this is a question I meant to ask earlier so you still have one more like other question but okay um who do you follow chefs on Instagram Baltimore or not like who would you say your top three food follows hmm um there's a lot that I just sort of like know visually, but I don't know names because there's so much. But Liz Pruitt um, from Tartine, okay, 
uh, I follow her and she actually puts very well-researched recipes on her Instagram posts, which is very generous. For free? Yeah, for free. Um, And she is gluten-free. She, you know, in the midst of like running one of the most successful bakeries in the country, she realized that she was, I can't remember if she's actually celiac or just has a wheat allergy. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, so she started to develop um, gluten-free recipes and like her pie crust recipe is excellent. Like... And I'm pretty sure the first time I saw that was just on her Instagram account. So cool. that's really great. Um, who else? Look up Milk Glass Market. What is that? Milk, milk Glass, Glass Market? Market. Mm-hmm. In, or, or just maybe just Milk Glass. It's in um, Portland, Oregon. Milk Glass Market. It's Anne's good friend, Nancy Benson. Ooh. She is a chef here and then moved up there. And she's a baker. She's amazing. And she's one of those people who you just take whatever you have in your pantry and just, it's the simplest, but it's the most delicious umami. And that's how I felt about your cooking yesterday. Oh, mm-hmm. Like the use of, like selective use of salt, the textures, the, just simple, but just and amazing. Awesome. Yeah. That's nice to hear because that's really like what I set out to do is sort of like have a menu where things could be like 75% made ahead, you know, so that we can do like a a quick lunch service but then they're always like finished with something that's like a like a bright acidity or like finishing salt is so important because like if something's just salted you have a kind of vaguely salty taste in your mouth but if you bite into it and you get like a little burst of saltiness it just helps you taste everything else Mm -hmm. and then like crunchiness too is really hard to achieve if something's been sitting for a while so like that really needs to be like the final thing Mm -hmm. um I larder there's another larder actually that I follow larder in Cleveland okay (laughs) and they um actually I think opened not that long before us but my husband was in Cleveland for work and he was like some I was telling someone about larder and they're like oh we there's a larder here in Cleveland you have to go and they are um they're a little bit more like um on one hand they're more like a traditional deli like they do sandwiches and but they're also doing like really wild fermentation experiments so they're they're making like salami but like out of beets and mushrooms but like culturing them and just like really pushing um fermentation and culturing foods to the limit so um honestly like if i if like money wasn't an issue and i could just like close the restaurant for a couple days and take the whole staff on a field trip i would take them there Mm -hmm. um just because it seems really exciting what they're doing it's your sister city yeah exactly our sister restaurant and and i we have had some exchanges about like oh we have to somehow sometime have like a larder convening <laughs> you can meet in pittsburgh it's in the middle right yeah yeah totally um who else on instagram just one more yeah it's okay one if you, more if you don't have one that's fine too we're trying on our instagram not to just post plates of food because i do find that that just becomes like static you know like it, my whole world is food and i don't in particular enjoy just scrolling through like plate after plate of food well how do you diversify that i mean how do you or how do you engage someone with so I recently was watching this interview um and or reading an interview excuse me and it was a millennial woman interviewing a Gen Z woman okay and she was saying like you know you guys graduated into this like nightmare recession <laughs> after like eight years of Bush and it was craziness and well all right calm down get to you <laughs> and this the the Gen Z woman was saying or girl I don't know what she is I don't know how old they are um. But she was saying, you know, we sort of have graduated like post into or post Obama right. and our lives are that we can remember were like really amazing. And like you guys were at the advent of Instagram when everything had to look perfect and beautiful and you showed that there was like hope and loveliness in the world and it wasn't all just like recession and craziness. And she's like, but we're on the side of showing reality and equalizing and, you know, these are the flaws and the mistakes and as a millennial, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And so I, I'm to to lead my question to you, like, how do you reconcile both of those thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess like well, just with the original question about like how we try to diversify the imagery, um, I try like I try to focus on ingredients and people. Um, so like when we get a really beautiful like batch of peppers in, like to me, that's a more interesting picture, like just as like someone 
with an art background and mm-hmm. like just thinking about the image. Um, and then people, like, I think there's probably some statistics about like, you know, people I think always get more of a response just because we're humans. We like, we're interested in pictures of other humans. Sure. <laughs> um, but then like, you know, the stories that go with that, like are important for us, like um, just in terms of like the extra effort we make to do what we're doing. Um, well, like the farmers that are helping you do that. And, exactly. Yeah. Like I think in How order you... for people to understand like why they would maybe go the effort to come a little further to come eat at our place or pay a little extra money. It's like, this is why, like, because these farmers are like taking care of the land in this way. They're, um, you know, taking good care of their workers in this way. They're, um, they're just, it's sort of like that somewhat flawed idea of, you know, democracy where you get to like, or like capitalism where you get to vote with your dollar. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so trying to exercise that as much as we can by like, um, having the money we spend go to things that we feel good about Mm -hmm. and support. Um, so yeah, we try to, I think rather than having a lot of that stuff like on our menu and we do like put like sprinkle like names of farms in there, like not all the farms because it gets to be too much, but Rather than having, like, tons of information on our menu, like, we want the menu to just be, like, this is the food we have, mm-hmm. you know. Not going to make you read a book. Like, here it is. It's, like, six items. It's a good call. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the in- so Instagram then becomes the way we can, like, for people who are interested to know, like, the deeper. deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So that's kind of how we think about it. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll ask you my last question. Okay. So what was the biggest culinary surprise for you when you moved to Baltimore? Uh, I feel like this is such an obvious answer, but um, good Mexican food, Clavel. You know, it's just like, honestly, it was like one of the first restaurants we went to. I think the folks at Hex recommended it. And we were like, oh, we just moved from California. Like, do we really want to go eat Mexican food in Baltimore? Like, I don't know. Um, and like, even just the mezcal selection right off the bat, we were like, whoa, okay, this place is serious. James Beard nominated. <laughs> Yeah, so um so yeah, that was like that was definitely like a very good surprise. It's a great surprise. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate of course. it. Yeah. And larder is delicious. I hope everybody goes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show, Helena. To learn more about larder and to keep up to date with their menus and events, go to at larder baltimore on Instagram. For past Hey Baltimore episodes and info about everything happening downtown, go to our website, godowntownbaltimore.com. Hey Baltimore is edited and produced by Mike Evitz and made possible by Downtown Partnership. Our theme music is by Super City, and I'm your host, Megan Eisenach. Thanks for listening.